to. Brethren, I would remind you in what terms I preach to you the gospel, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the script in accordance with the scriptures, and he hath appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so. Great possessions. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As a rule, clergymen in the Orthodox Church try to say nothing new when they preach the sermon, when they try to illuminate the gospel. And so it is common that we will read commentaries of the fathers and also read sermons that have been preached by other saints of the church. And I'll confess to you that this particular passage is especially intimidating to me. And I was um, blessed to be able to find um, a complete sermon of St. Basil the Great. And I'd seen it before, and I hadn't seen it in a while, and I looked it up, and I found it. And it is so good... um, I won't read it to you because it's about ten pages long. And that sermons were longer in those days. Um, um, but I did um, ask that it be posted on our website so that you can actually read the full thing. It is very challenging and very, very good to read something so modern from the fourth century that speaks to our hearts. And as I began to read some of these sermons, it... It occurred to me, and maybe this is very obvious, that a sermon is really a persuasive speech. And most of you remember having to do a persuasive speech in high school. There's a certain form for it. Um, it's like a one-sided argument where the speaker is trying to convince you of something. And very often, perhaps most often, including perhaps today, the sermon will try to convince us of something that is true about God, something that is true about ourselves, and then give us something to do about it. And for you all Christians who, who know God and who, who live in His temple, the first is not hard. Perhaps it's not hard. And that is that God loves us beyond measure, beyond our ability to understand. When we think about the love of a parent for a child, and we realize that that kind of love compares or is incomparable to the, to the love of which God bestows on us. And realize that every word spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ, everything allowed by God in our circumstances, is for our benefit, is for our salvation. It's so that we would know Him and draw nearer to Him. And it really is an expression of His love for us, including today's Gospel. 
So we read this gospel in both Matthew and Mark and Luke, and they're very close to the same. We learn from the combination of them that this man is young and he's rich, and he's even a ruler, part of the ruling class. He comes up to Jesus kneeling and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is not, though it's almost the same question as one of the lawyers who came up to him and asked him this. Um, this man is not a part of the crowd, but rather has followed after the disciples and Jesus as they were traveling. And he has an earnestness. He really wants to know. And Jesus answers him. You should keep the... If, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he says, which? Which commandments? And Jesus, really essentially pointing him to all of the commandments, says, You shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that last one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is not one of the ten, but occurs later in Leviticus. And it's one that Christ himself emphasized in his teaching over and over again, that the greatest of the commandments is to love God, and then the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, All these I have observed, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And we remember that the young man, though he is earnest for the kingdom of God, he goes away sorrowful. He cannot follow Christ on these terms. He had great possessions. His wealth had weighed him down and kept him from unity with Christ. And we read this, and it's tempting for us to say, well, we're not rich, so Jesus isn't talking to us. But St. Basil is very emphatic that he is indeed talking to us and all this. And that this is one of the commandments of Christ that we are supposed to obey. That somehow we have to work this out. Now, if I'm going to convince you of something about yourselves, perhaps I need to convince you that you are rich. America is the richest country in the world. And yet, if you were in a room like this and asked for a show of hands, how many are wealthy? Oh, no one would raise their hand. Because we all know someone who is wealthier. We don't think of ourselves as wealthy. Because we always compare up. We never compare down. And so we let ourselves off the hook. Because, well, we're not rich, and so this really doesn't apply to us. But we are wealthy. And by any stretch of a measurement across the world, we realize that, uh, I won't cite the statistics exactly, but if we make $40,000 a year, which is a relatively modest income, probably for this parish, we're in the top 3% of earners in the world. We're among the wealthiest of the wealthy. That we are indeed wealthy. And so when we are called here to recognize that Jesus is saying to us, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. We all want to have treasure in heaven. And it seems to us that we are being asked to sell all that we have and give to the poor to come and follow Him. Surely that can't be right. But this command is to us. 
We are immersed in a wealth culture. We forget about it sometimes because it is so prevalent. The United States, perhaps more than any other country, idolizes wealth and we flaunt it. As we drive down the freeway, we see it all around and our eyes are drawn towards these flashy vehicles that are so cool. It's impossible for us not to be affected by it. In that same sermon, St. Basil says, Nothing withstands the force of wealth. All things succumb to its tyranny. All things cringe before its dominion. Not only are we wealthy, we're, like our culture, addicted to it. We want more. We want more of it. No matter how much we have, we want more of it. How many of us, when offered a raise, would say, Oh, no thank you. I'm, I'm good. I'm actually good. I don't need that raise. Or maybe a year-end bonus. No, no thank you. Or a scholarship. No, I don't think I really need a scholarship. I'll be alright. But when we talk about wealth, we sometimes think about well, all this extra money we have in the bank. But what I mean by wealth is this ease and this comfort pleasure and entertainment that our wealth has bought us. We may have spent all our money on other things, maybe perhaps like this rich young ruler who had great possessions. And we, like him, have great possessions. Now it is important for us when we talk about wealth, or really anything that impacts our spiritual life, it's important for us to only look at ourselves and not anyone else. Jesus is talking to us individually and saying, you have wealth and you need to be accountable for that wealth. So it's only ourselves that we look at. We can't compare. We can't say, but what about them? They're wealthier than I am. And they're not doing this or that. So how are we to reconcile our life as Christians with this gospel? We spend a huge amount of our time making money, managing our money, saving our money, deciding how to spend our money, what kind of things we're going to buy, how we're going to convert our income into wealth and pleasure and ease. And we think, well, this is just the way the world works. We have to. We have to provide for our families. We have to provide a roof for our, our roof over our heads. We have to have gas for our cars so we can get to church. But we are called to not be of this world. We are called to somehow be different. We're not called to share the values of this wealth-worshipping culture. So, what is the Lord really saying to us? And what was so wrong with this person who had obeyed all the commandments? This is what St. Basil says in his sermon. I'll read a short piece. Now, you obviously are very far. He's speaking to the rich man who... Um, Christ spoke to. You obviously are very far from having observed one commandment at least. You falsely swore that you had kept it, namely, that you loved your neighbor as yourself. For see, the Lord's commandment proves you to be utterly lacking in real love. For if what you claimed were true, that you've kept from your youth the commandment of love, and have given to each person as much as to yourself, how has it come to you, this abundance of money? For it takes wealth to care for the needy, 
a little paid out for the necessity of each person you take on and all at once everything gets parceled out and is spent. Thus the man who loves his neighbor as himself will have acquired no more than his neighbor has, whereas you visibly have acquired a lot. Where has this come from, or is it not clear that it comes from making your private enjoyment more important than helping other people? And here's the punchline. Therefore, however much you exceed in wealth, so much you fall short in love. Ouch. So, I mentioned in the beginning, this this gospel to me is very intimidating. Because we are people of wealth. And we are people who love God. And we have to reconcile our lives as wealthy Americans. As comfort-loving, ease-loving Americans. That we can reconcile our lives with with the truth of the gospel. So far, this is not very encouraging. But our God loves us so. It is His will for all to be saved. And Jesus spoke to this person in love. He wants nothing to stand between us and full communion with Him. So what do we do with this commandment? How do we figure out how to apply this to us? This is not a one-time deal. Throughout Scripture, Christ is very consistent. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Essentially, don't be wealthy. For the man who is building bigger barns, he said, don't lay up treasures for yourself. Sell your possessions. Give alms. Provide for yourselves with purses that do not grow old. Don't be wealthy. St. John, the, the theologian, says to us, do not love the world nor the things of the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this world is passing away. So we can't really get around this teaching. And yet, St. Basil the Great and others help us with this. St. Basil says, and I'll quote again, So how are we supposed to live without possessions, they say? What kind of life would that be, selling everything, being dispossessed of everything? Don't ask me for the rationale of the Master's commandments, he says. He who lays down the law knows how to bring even what is incapable into accordance with the law. But as for you, your heart is tested as on a balance to see if it shall incline toward true life or towards immediate gratification. For it is right for those who are prudent in their reasonings to regard the use of money as a matter of stewardship and not as of selfish enjoyment. The way that we reconcile this scripture is through true stewardship of all that we have been given. St. Theophilact, in his commentary, illuminates this even more. And forgive me for reading long passages, but they're, but they're so well said. Jesus told the disciples privately that it is difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And he said, it, really, it's impossible because a camel is not going through the eye of a needle. So it's impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, to be saved. So we're rich, 
Therefore, it is impossible for us to be saved. And that is absolutely true in human thought. By ourselves, we can do nothing. Jesus didn't say, well, how easy it is for the poor to enter into the kingdom of God. What he said was true of the rich man, and what he has said is true of the middle man and the, and the poor man. It is difficult to enter into the kingdom of God. And it is essentially impossible for a wealthy man. Impossible, says Blessed Theophilot. What does the Lord mean? First, that this statement is true. That it is impossible for a rich man, while he is a rich man, to be saved. Do not say to me that such and such a rich man gave away his riches and was saved. He was not saved as a rich man. He was either saved as a man who had attained non-possessiveness or as someone who had become a steward, but not as a rich man. A steward and a rich man are not the same. The rich man keeps riches for himself and is possessed by them, while the steward holds wealth for the benefit of others. Therefore, if such a man is saved, he is not saved as a rich man, but as we have said, because he has given away all that he has, or because he has spent his wealth as a good steward. He who has riches, that is the master of riches, owning them but not being owned them, shall be saved. But even this, with difficulty, because of the difficulty of human weakness, it is impossible for us not to misuse what we have. This is why non-possessiveness is better. So, we have a caveat here. It is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is not, oh, wait a minute, you mean I can be wealthy as long as I call myself a steward? When we approach our wealth, we didn't make ourselves wealthy, for the most part. We are as wealthy as we were a while ago, maybe a little bit more now. Um, So we have responsibility with this wealth. What should we do with it? Spend it on our pleasures? Spend it on our passions? Or view everything that we have as a steward? That everything we have is given to us by God for our salvation. So then we might use it. Then we might spend it for our salvation. We might spend it for heaven. So how can we actually become stewards of this? How can we prove ourselves stewards and not just wealthy people who call themselves stewards to feel better about themselves? How can we really free ourselves of the tyranny of wealth? So hopefully I've convinced you that you're wealthy and that on your own, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But by God's grace and by His word, all things are possible with God. It says at the end of the scripture, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. That is, with God's help, all things are possible. If we rely on God to help us use our wealth, then we can be saved. We can enter into the kingdom and we can have communion with Him here now. So, how do we do that? I will say a couple of challenging things. The first of our stewardship is our tithe. We can test ourselves and see if we are truly slaves to wealth and slaves to pleasure by giving the first fruits. That is, we give 10% of our income 
to the church before we put money in savings, before we pay the mortgage, before we put money in the college fund, before we pay off our student loans, before we have nice vacations, before we go out to eat in restaurants. We give God our first fruits. Now, this may not be realistic for people to do right now if you're not already. Because of structures we've built already in our lives, the places our money is already going. But this should certainly be a goal. It is the tradition that we should give 10% to God. And with what's left over, we live. And with what's left over, we also view as God's. And we give generously. We give alms freely. With generosity, hardly even thinking about what we're doing. When someone asks us for money, we should be quick to reach for our wallets. Not just our excess money, but money that we might spend on ourselves. We need to be spontaneous and be free, but we also need to make plans. We need to have cash in our wallets to help people that we encounter. And when we have various fundraising opportunities, we shouldn't grumble, oh my gosh, another, another fundraiser. More things to spend money on. We should rejoice at these opportunities. Rejoice at these opportunities to lighten our load, to reduce the wealth we spend on ourselves. And then finally, as Jesus commanded us, we need to remember the poor. He said not to the young man, don't go give away your money to your relatives or to your friends. He said give the money to the poor. We have been made wealthy by God, by His grace, by His providence for us. And the reason we have that wealth is so that we can be responsible with it for building up of the church and for helping the poor. Not that we will eliminate poverty. The poor we will always have with us. And that implies that we will always have a responsibility for the poor. Being a Christian demands that we have a different kind of lifestyle. That we look at worldly wealth and worldly resources and the values of the world in a different way. And that somehow our lifestyle should reflect that. Our God loves us immeasurably. He has poured out that love on us in many ways. And one of those is that He has entrusted us with wealth. And that wealth for us can be a stumbling block or it can be a means for our salvation. This is a challenging gospel. And I don't know exactly all the ways that it needs to even happen and be manifested and to be expressed in in my life. And this is one of those places where we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that our Lord loves us and that nothing is possible without His help. Amen.